invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. I'll be starting there in just a moment. But as usual, it's good to see everyone out this evening. If you're visiting with us, we're delighted that you are with us. We ask that you stick around for a few minutes afterwards that we might get to know you a little bit more, be able to talk with you before you go on your journey home. It's been a beautiful day overall, uh, just weather-wise. It's been a little bit cooler, so I think that makes it a little bit easier to... uh, I don't know, just kind of feel a little bit lighter throughout the day. Um, it certainly makes it a lot easier not to fall asleep because you're not nearly as hot. So uh, we have that going for us at least this morning and, and this evening. But um, like, I, like I always say, it's just good to be able to be with the family of God, be able to praise Him in songs and in prayers. And uh, just already been so encouraged by the worship that we've offered up to Him uh, so far this evening. Um, <clears throat> I would just remind everyone again of uh, what was already announced during uh, the opening remarks that the Dishman family is is suffering the loss of Sheila's father, Paul Garner, and we want to make sure that we can help them in whatever way that we can, make sure that we reach out to them throughout this week and see how we can help and how we can lift them up throughout this hard time. Um, As I said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 20, we're going to be looking at Uh, at least beginning here in this passage in the middle of the chapter and it's one of my favorite passages because I just I I always like whenever Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees the scribes the chief priests whenever he's speaking to people who are are clearly very dishonest in their dealings with him and in their questioning of him and I love these kinds of passages because every single time Jesus just so masterfully just puts them down. It's just hard to climb. And he, he, never, he never lashes out the way that they want him to. He never gives them a wrong answer. He's always very godly minded in his answer. It always comes back to what, what is it that the word has get, said? What, what is my father's initiative here? And I always love that. But especially in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is steadily approaching the cross. He's getting closer and closer to the day of his death on the cross. And it, I would say, therefore, his teachings are getting more and more pointed. And I think a part of that is not just because he's approaching the cross, but it's also because the scribes and the chief priests attempts to hinder him are more pointed. And they're just getting kind of confounded and, and flabbergasted because they're trying to trip him up and they're just failing at every turn. And in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, <clears throat> They, they have tried to trip him up on the law. They've tried to trip him up on God's word. And they are not successful because he truly knows God's word. It's, it's his father's word. In fact, he was there when it was written. And so it's, it's impossible to trip him up on that. So knowing that they couldn't possibly do that with the law, they try to get him into some trouble with the Roman authorities. And so beginning in verse 20 of Luke chapter 20, it says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is, again, I would say another at least hopefully very famous passage. And it's kind of funny because I've heard it said 
a couple of times in reading articles and just in hearing people teach about this before. You know, a lot of times when we come to a passage like this, this is one of those moments where we really want God to say a certain thing on the matter. Taxes? Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> but that's not what he says. But not only does he not go down that route, what Jesus actually says is incredibly profound. And, and more than that, it's just powerful. And so let's read what he says, beginning in verse 23. How does he answer? It says, he detected their trickery and said to them in verse 24, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. And would that they would just keep silent and, and contemplate the answers of the Lord. But we know how that story continues to unfold. But regardless, just sticking with what we read here, he destroys their feeble attempt at getting him in trouble with the Roman authorities while using the very means that they were too afraid to accuse him with. They weren't coming to him with scripture. They didn't want to do that because he had already just completely handled them and owned them in every turn when they questioned him about the law. But even when they take the law out of it, they're just trying to get him by other means. What happens is he brings that scriptural mindset back into play. And I think there's something to take from that. But more than that, it, I think this passage brings up an important question. As Jesus does bring us back to a scriptural mindset, how am I supposed to be living in view of God when it comes to this question? He's so good at that. He always gets right to the point. And I think we need to get right to the point when it comes to the applications that, that Jesus makes. Now, I say all that. We're not going to be staying in Luke chapter 20. Because what I want to do is answer a question that I think comes up as you read Jesus' answer here towards the chief priests and the scribes. This answer was correct, and, and it, was, it was correct in the face of a deceitful question, a dishonest question. But I think he was doing more than just trying to give them an answer. Jesus never answered people just to show that he knew all the answers. Jesus answered people because he wanted that answer to lead them closer to God particularly in their situation before him. So, of course, as we look at the denarius here, Jesus says whose likeness, whose image is upon it or inscription does it have. If someone's signature or image was on something, well, that indicates that it belongs to them. This, this is under their domain. They have dominion over this. This belongs to them. Now, what immediately comes to my mind is, and what I think Jesus was really trying to get across to these Jews here that should have known the law pretty well, that should have had a close relationship with God, I think what he's trying to get them to think of is this question in particular. Whose image, whose likeness is on you? In fact, I've even heard someone say as they were going through that, that conversation there between uh, Jesus and the scribes and the chief priests, he said, I'm, I'm convinced that if the conversation went any longer, he would have asked this extra question. Whose image is on you? And of course, we know what that uh, answer is as we get to Genesis chapter 1. So what does this mean? What should this mean that we are made in the image of God as it says in Genesis chapter 1? What does that entail? And, and I'll tell you, there is so, so much that it entails. There's so many things that we could say. I just want to look at a couple of things and ask if God's image is on me. Well, first of all, if it is at all, but if that is the case, what does that require of me? And so, first of all, I just want to look at this notion of being made in God's image. Over in Genesis 1, in chap uh, chapter 1, and verse 26, <clears throat> this is where we see, first of all, the creation of man on the sixth day. But this is where we find that 
phrase being used. In chapter 1 of verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, particularly, there, you see a couple of times in those two verses that notion of being created in God's image or being uh, created in his likeness, according to his likeness, as it says in verse 26. Now, what does that mean for us? And I want to look at a couple of ways that both those words are used, both image and likeness, because I think that that describes just a little bit more of, of immediately what we need to bring into this, or what application we need to bring into this if we truly are made in the image of God. And first of all, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, here's an example of when this word is used again. And it's after uh, the flood, and God is giving this law, very interesting law that I think many people would disagree with today. But Genesis chapter 9 in verse 6, it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And you know, you look at that and you might think that that's kind of out of place. But here, what is God showing? He is showing that man has value to him. He is showing that you don't get to just shed man's blood. You don't get to just kill anybody that you see fit. And, and, and you know, at this point, it's not like they were necessarily untouched or unassociated with death. And even with murder, in fact, before the flood, things got very, very evil. But even beyond that, you would have animals, uh, they could be killed, they could be sacrificed, they could be eaten, but the blood of man was created in his image, and that was not to be shed. All these other things, that was okay to shed, that was okay to, to, uh, for that blood to be spilt, but when it comes to man, that is not okay because this blood is precious. And what made it precious? It wasn't just that man can think while animals cannot. It is specifically because he was created in God's image. And there is value that comes along with that. And in fact, I think we still have this kind of mindset today. What, what do we say when we, are trying to, when we are trying to argue and dismantle peop, the, the case that people make for abortion? Well, we come back to this very notion. It's one of our main arguments against sins like abortion, that babies, whether they're unborn or they, or they are born, they are made in the image of God. And it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter if it is unborn, they still have value because of that fact. Because God is the one that formed them in the womb. He knew them before they lived out their days. They are important to him because they are made in his image. And so this is a, it's a very important, I think, aspect of this notion of being made in his image, created in his image, because it shows that we have value specifically to him. And therefore, the secondary application is we should see each other as fellow image bearers of God. We should have enough wherewithal to realize they are made in the image of God, just like me. And I need to look at them with that kind of, look at that life with that same level of value. And we could even refer back to the lesson this morning about evangelism. We need to see people as fellow image bearers of God who, who God wants to come back in association and fellowship with them. But first of all, it shows that we have value to him. Beyond that, I think it means that we were made to have a personal relationship with him. Coming back to Genesis chapter 5, once more this is used in Genesis chapter 5 in verse 1. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. 
In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day, uh, man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, again, in verses 1 and 2, you see that notion of being created on the sixth day in the image of God. But verse 3 is really the main uh, passage that I want to focus on because it begins talking about the sons, the descendants of Adam and Eve. And what does he say about Seth? But that he shared the likeness according to Adam's image. That he shared that likeness. And, and you see that familial connection. Like father, like son. And the way a parent looks at their child, there's automatically a very deep level of love. There's a very deep level of care as soon as that child is born. And, and I think that there's a reason that this same phrase, that this same, these same words are used in connection with that kind of family, that kind of relationship. What do we have with God? We have a heavenly father. And when he creates man in his image, that not only shows that we have value, but why do we have value? Because we are his children. And so there's automatically a love and a care that's supposed to be there. And I'm not just talking about that God has for us, but that we are supposed to have for God. Again, coming back to the point, what is this supposed to mean for us? When we look at God and we look at our relationship with him, there should be a notion of he is my father, that I have a trust for him in that capacity, that I have a love and a care for him in that capacity. And not only that, but that I want to stay in that kind of relationship with him, that I want to have that kind of fellowship with him. God didn't just create another animal, but rather a creature that he would have fellowship with. And that's a, that's a beautiful notion. That's a beautiful thought. That we were special and unique in the fact that we were the ones that got to have fellowship with him. But more on that as we continue, because I think that we're supposed to have that same kind of personal relationship with him today. And, and, and I'm not just saying a relationship in terms of getting salvation. Yes, that is a part of it, but it should go beyond just getting salvation, but trying to develop that relationship, that there is that deep level of care and fellowship. Well, continuing on, and I think most importantly, I think that being created in his image intrinsically implies moral purity and holiness, that we are supposed to be and look like God. And again, I think I've mentioned this, but I don't think that this is just referring to the fact that we, over all animals, have a conscience. God created many breathing things. None of them can think. That, so that, that's why we're higher than, the, than, than all the other creatures on this earth. That's why we are unique in regards to all of the other animals, that, uh, everything that breathes on this earth. No, that is not the only reason. I think that's a part of it. That's true enough that we can think in a capacity that they can't, that we have a conscience, that we have a soul. But a soul is more than just being able to do math. A soul is more than just being able to think logically. It is, it is I think, supposed to be that we have a conscience like that of God's. All kinds of people have consciences, but all kinds of people have consciences that are not directed by God. And if we are truly made in his image, what that means is the way we think, our character, even our emotions. We're not just going to have emotions like everybody else in the world. We're going to have emotions that are cultivated, that are crafted, that are designed by God. And why? Because he is our creator. We are made in his image. 
And so I think all of, things, all of these things go into this notion of being made in his image. We need to have uh, that same notion that was carried all the way throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, even when you get to the Israelites, when God says that you are to be holy, for I am holy, in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. You go all the way to 1 Peter chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, rather, 1 Peter chapter 1, and that notion doesn't die out. 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so I, this notion never really dies out. It just continues on that even today we are supposed to look like him. And, and keep this passage in mind as we continue on, because when we get to that main application, we're going to have the same thought process of making sure that we're not conformed to the world but conforming to God not looking like the world but looking more like God and so are we truly uh, living in such a way that we can say we bear God's image or and this is what I this is the other side of this uh, lesson what we find is that anything less than trying to look like him than trying to have fellowship with him is really a corrupted image and so the, when you do a word study on these words, likeness and image, from Genesis chapter 1, what you find is that the first and only times that they are used outside of God, outside of association with God, it only has to do with idolatry. It only has to do with the false images, the, the idols that the people built up for themselves. In fact, over in 2 Kings chapter 11, 2 Kings chapter 11, <coughs> <coughs> 2 Kings chapter 11, in verse 18. <clears throat> this is not the only time that Israel struggled with this issue, but in 2 Kings chapter 11, in verse 18, it says, well, we'll begin in verse 17. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they would be the Lord's people also between the king and the people. And so this is a very good, a very good start to the passage. All the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces thoroughly and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. This is a very good moment because here you have people tearing down the images of Baal, the, the craven images that they had built up for themselves to worship and to bow down to, to idols made of wood and stone, nothing more. And what are they doing? They're tearing these images down. They're talking about idols. It's talking about idolatry. Now, I say this is a good passage. It shouldn't even be that we've gotten to the point where they've built these things up. But time and time again, that's what Israel does. They uh, specifically take the time and the energy and the resources to build these things up and not only build them up, but put them in blasphemous places. They even start to encroach upon Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God the city of God, but over in another passage in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 18. <clears throat> this is an important passage as well because as it's talking about the likeness of God, it begins comparing all of the things that the people give themselves over to and really what they start to look like themselves and comparing that to God. Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 18 beginning. It says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him let me just before we read on what is there 
that we can liken to God. Is there anything comparable? Is there anything even remotely capable of standing up against his power? Now, the clear answer across the board, if we all were going to shout in unison, it would be there's nothing. But look at what the people have done. In verse 19, as for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished, impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. And there's so much to be said about this, but what we ultimately see here is a stark contrast between the idols that the people build up for themselves in worship and the God that created them. It's interesting that they don't see the dramatic irony here. They look at a tree and instead of, instead of being impressed by this incredible part of creation that a tiny little seed has sprouted up and created this massive and beautiful and strong tree, instead of being fascinated by that and bowing down in worship to God, declaring his glory, they cut that tree down, they plaster it all down, and they make an idol out of it. And what do they do? They sacrifice to it. They bow down to it. And they go to the point of sacrificing their own children. Ooh, that's a lot of faith they put into these things. And so when you look at the kind of judgment, the kind of extreme language, the severe language that God puts against idolaters, it's deserved. Because only a fool can look at something so beautiful as creation. And instead of giving God the glory, taking that glory away and giving it to what is a part of creation, what he has created himself. Where the idols were deaf, God, never, nothing ever escapes his notice. Where the idols are mute, nothing can overpower or trump his voice. Where the idols are powerless, he is limitless. And there are so many instances throughout the Old Testament where you see this in play, in full effect, one of my favorite moments is when you have, when you have the, 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 uh, the, the statue that they built, this massive statue, when the Philistines bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And what do you have during the time that the Ark of the Covenant is in their camp? But several times, their God is bowing to Yahweh. And what does that show you? It's just indicative of, of really the story of man. The things that man builds up for themselves, the things that we decide we are going to worship other than God, they don't hold a candle to him. And in fact, we look more like the fool because look at the kind of display of power we have here when you have this struggle, struggle, I use that term loosely, between the idols and God. There is no contest because these, you have a living God against dead wooden stone. But you have another passage like Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4. I like the way that it's been said before. You know, when, when God gives this command during, within the Ten Commandments that they are not to create a craven image or a carved image, you know why God gave this command? Because he already had made an image of himself, man. And instead of being seeing the beauty of that, man decides to go against that, reject him, and continue to follow after idolatry. Ultimately, what I think this amounts to, first of all, is as we see in Romans chapter 1, degrading that value that we talked about, being created in his image, by exchanging what we worship, or God, with whatever it is that we want to worship at the time. Over in Romans chapter 1 and verse 23. Romans chapter 1 and verse 23. 
Romans 1 and verse 23. <clears throat> Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And once more, you just see the folly of idolatry. What had they done? They had given glory that only belongs to God to that which is below him, to that which is below man. We need to understand that because when God creates man and he says that we are created in his likeness, in his image, what does he do? But he gives dominion to man over the world, over the animals. And man comes in and instead of having dominion over those things, they craft idols after those things and bow down before them. Foolish. Absurd. And so they exchange the incorruptible creator with the corruptible creature. And I think there are several ways that we do the very same thing, how we diminish our value. Ultimately, it's by abandoning that image. How do we do this? Well, first of all, very briefly, the first and primary way we do this is by choosing ourselves as Lord instead of God, by choosing ourselves as King, as God, instead of Him. Secondly, I think the way that we do this is by choosing something else that receives our allegiance in this life over Him. What does it all boil down to? It boils down to idolatry. It boils down to authority. Whose authority are we going to put ourselves under? Is it God's or is it man's? And that can be me. That can be someone else that I have chosen. But we are giving our allegiance to something or someone. And we need to make sure that it is the creator. Otherwise, anything, anything else is idolatry. But not only that, but when we corrupt this image that we are supposed to hold... I think it also amounts to choosing a pattern that is not God's. And it comes, and I, th I think you see this very beautifully in a passage in 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16. <clears throat> Here's another passage where you don't actually see fully idols necessarily, but you do see an idolatrous practice. 2 Kings chapter 16 in verse 10. It says, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. It's very interesting because this same word for likeness is the word that the New American, trans that the New American Standard Bible translates it as pattern. Now, we look at that and we might think, how is this trying to have fellowship with immorality? Uh, you know, Ahaz could very easily say, well, you know what? I'm not really associating with, sin with sinfulness. I'm not really associating with immoral people. I, I would never associate with a Gentile. I would never associate with someone that's not an Israelite. I would never associate with someone that is a Baal worshiper. He could probably say something like that. He might be able to get away with it with some individuals. But what had he done? And just, he, while he could say, hey, I, I don't have fellowship with this king. I don't have fellowship with these people. I don't hang out with them he had invited the same practices that they were engaging in, not even just to his own house, but in God's domain, God's realm. And so I think there are many ways that people do this today. We try to act like I'm not really, I, I'm not really having fellowship with sinfulness because I'm not hanging out with these people. But what are we doing? We're, we're making the same kind of choices of where to go and hang out. We're making the same kind of choices of entertainment. I'm, I'm not having fellowship with immorality. What have you invited into your home? It doesn't have to be just flesh and blood person. It can just very simply be idolatry that comes through the TV screen. 
All it is is seeking after a pattern that is not righteous, that is not holy, that is not God's. And that amounts to idolatry. And so we need to be so careful about that, that we are not following after a pattern that isn't God's, ultimately trying to seek immoral fellowship. And so finally, I would say, kind of going along with the first three points we made of being created in God's image, I think it amounts to not acting like God, period. Uh, Over in Psalm 73, Psalm 73, a psalm of doubt that starts with immense doubt from Asaph, He starts by saying that he he doesn't understand how he is the one that's suffering when he is trying to be pure and righteous in God's sight, and yet he looks at the wicked, and what are they? They're fat and sleek. They are being blessed. It almost seems like they're being rewarded for how they're acting. And he thinks to a degree, why have I been living this way? But as he stops and ponders and thinks about God, something clicks. He realizes the answer. And as you begin in uh, verse 13 and onward, he begins to talk about that shift in his, in his mind as he thinks about God and he thinks about God's plan and as he comes into the worship. But in verse 20, as he's, after he's had this enlightenment, it says, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Talking about the wicked, talking about those that were fat and sleek, that he said, it seems like they're being blessed. But what does he say? I know that you despise their form. And that word form there in verse 20, it's the same word for image. And what is he saying ultimately? The wicked's form. He's talking about those who don't want to submit to God. Those who do not want to submit to being like him. When God said, be holy like I am holy, they don't want that. They and, and so they either outright reject him or perhaps it's not just as outright and blatant as that. Maybe it's not as direct but someone says, when, when, when they hear, be holy as I am holy. I mean, I do want to be a part of this kingdom. I do want to be, you know, I want to have God's image upon me. But there's a few things that he says that I just don't really want. And so what do we do? Slowly but surely, we begin to take the form of the wicked. We begin to, instead of crushing doubt with scripture, crushing doubt with God, We begin to bow to it. And so I think that all of these things have to do with corrupting that image that we are supposed to be created. Now, finally, with the the last bit of application here, in Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 3, I think you find uh, one one of the most encouraging passages here when it comes to what we need if we're trying to fix that image that we have broken when we have sinned against God. Colossians chapter 3, in verse 10. As Paul is talking to Christians who have been risen in Christ, as it begins in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, he's skipping down to verse 10. He says, And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so what does he say say here? When we sin, we have broken that relationship. We have broken God's law and therefore we have corrupted that image, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We were created pure. We were created essentially new. And we started out looking just as pure and holy as God. But like Adam and Eve, we sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, instead of taking God 
and only staying with him and keeping in that fellowship, they decide to go down their own path. And what happens? That relationship needs to be repaired. And God's not going to overlook that the relationship needs to be repaired. God's not going to overlook that there has been corruption. We have to be purified. We have to be sanctified. We have to be cleansed. We have to be mended. And so, God says in the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, that we have to be made a new creation, a spiritual rebirth in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, and what does that new creation look like? It is being risen in Christ through baptism, becoming a Christian, having a renewal of the person, a renewal of that character, that what was broken, what was corrupted, what was harmed, what was hurt, now it can be renewed. Now it can be sanctified. Now it can be cleansed. But it has to come through this renewal, not another pattern. And so we have to seek to have fellowship with God again. And that is through only that renewal. Over in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what was lost in the garden? What was lost when we sinned? It is regained. And how is it regained? How are we glorified? We have to first be conformed to his image once again. And this time... Instead of leaving that image, instead of choosing to follow after another path, this time it looks like I'm done following that path. Now I'm going to stick with you and only you. You have my allegiance. You have my 100% loyalty and devotion. And so we have to be renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of Christ. And that means choosing his authority over all else and not following after the pattern of Adam and Eve in the garden. But finally, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. This is one of the most encouraging passages we can read because it says in verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Did you catch that? That we are partakers of the divine nature. Once again, we have to look like him. And that's not just, again, having a conscience. It's not just being able to think. It is thinking like him. It means putting on a character that looks more like Jesus, not less like him. If you stay in Colossians chapter 3, you see things that we're supposed to put on and things we're supposed to put away. The things that we're supposed to put away, like slander, like malice, abusive speech towards brethren. All of the things that we used to engage in before we were cleansed. How we used to act when we had that corrupted image. Sometimes I think that we re-corrupt that image after we've become Christians by engaging in those things. Slanderous speech against brethren. Malice when there should only be joy and, and gentleness and patience. We invite that corruption back on ourselves when we engage in those things that God said he is cleansing us from. But you continue on in verses 12 through 14 of Colossians chapter 3. What does God say? You put on peace. You put on love, which binds all of these things together. 
And I would just say, if we truly want to have fellowship with God again, if we truly want to be conformed, if we truly want to be this new creation, it is not just putting those evil things away, the sins that Paul talks about there away, but it is also, and most importantly, looking more like God every day, being more holy, because that, that command never, never leaves, be holy as I am holy. We have to be pure as he is pure. I like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 48, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. We must strive for that goal. Because if we are going to say, I'm willing to put these things away, but then say stagnant, that is not really, truly bearing the image of God. Bearing the image of God means putting those things away and trying to grow more and more with every single breath. And so, are we truly image bearers of God or have we corrupted that image? If you're not a Christian... You're in the same spot that Adam and Eve were when they sinned against God in the garden. Just waiting for someone to save you. But what we have in the gospel is a message, is that story of God's salvation that he extends to man through his son. Waiting for someone to save us? You have it in Jesus. Maybe you, were, maybe you have already become a Christian, you've already given yourself to Christ, but you've recorrupted that image. You don't have to leave this building with any doubt in your mind of where you're going to be tonight should you pass away on this earth. As we talked about this morning, every second, two souls are lost. And every second that goes by, it could be another moment that we lose that life. Are you prepared to meet God? Are you prepared to go before him and say, I have truly striven to look more like you every day. And this is all I want. Because now I get to finally be in your presence. I get to finally be in the presence of the one that I've been trying to craft my soul after this entire time. Or will you meet him in judgment, saying, forgive me, have mercy on me. Because all I've ever done is reject you. All I've ever done is push you away and give your glory that was supposed to be with you on the lesser things. What are we going to do in the judgment? You can make yourself right with God this very night. You can cleanse yourself and be right with him before you leave this building. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing. It's good to see everyone out this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is the first passage we're going to be looking at this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. As I said, it's good to see everyone out. It's been a beautiful morning so far and uh, just good to be able to spend time on a beautiful morning like this studying God's word and trying to learn from it apply it to our lives and to be able to worship him in song in prayer and appreciate all the men that have led us in that so far uh, we have a few visitors with us this morning if you are visiting with us we ask that you just stick around for a few minutes afterwards that we get the chance to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better uh, a few visitors that are somewhat familiar faces uh, we have uh, Zach Gross and his family with us this morning and I believe a lot of you know him. He's actually preached here before. And uh, when he came in, I said, do you want to preach for us this morning? He said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I came here to judge you, not the other way around. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's good to see him. We've, uh, me and Paige have been friends with him uh, particularly for a long time. And it's just good to be able to see him and see his whole family with us this morning. Like I said, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is a very familiar passage. I'd say for, for Christians that have been 
Christians at, at least for some time and maybe even for a very short time, I, I think that this is something that we tend to harp on a lot and for good reason because it's a very powerful passage and it's a passage that I think is critical when it comes to not just the individual Christian and their relationship with God, but our relationship with one another. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then you have verses 4 through 7 which go through all of those one statements. If one Lord, one baptism, one body. And all of that's important, but I really want to mainly focus on this morning the first three verses that we just read. Because it's in this passage, and just like many other passages, but particularly here, Paul, I think, is very emphatic in his language about the kind of atmosphere that you're supposed to have in a local church. The kind of atmosphere you're supposed to have just within the church abroad. It's supposed to be that said, it's supposed to be viewed that when Christians come together or when you have Christians looking at one another, this is the kind of attitude that they have. This is the kind of characteristic that would be very, uh, that would be very, at least should be very familiar when it comes to the church. Now, particularly at the very end of verse 3, I like what Paul says here because he says that we are supposed to be, uh, among other things, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I just want to start by asking a question. Is this a church that pr preserves the unity, that is striving to preserve unity? There's a lot of things that can be said about all the different denominations in the world and all of the, uh, you know, all of the churches that say that they are one church but then disagree completely with the person just next door. And there's something to be said about that, and maybe we'll look at that later on uh, in another lesson. But particularly this morning, I want to think about the unity of the local church, the unity that we're supposed to have within just these walls. Because frankly, if we can't get along with each other, I don't know how much impact we can have with others when we're trying to say, hey, you need to become a part of Christ's church. If we're not being a good example, why would they want to be a part of that church? And so we need to think inwardly before we start thinking outwardly. Last week we looked at evangelism and how we need to be actively engaged in preaching the gospel to others. When we are doing that, we have to think about what we're bringing them into. And so, along those lines, we need to be united. In fact, when you think about the, the notion of unity and division, the Kentucky State motto is actually, united we stand and divided we fall. Cool little tidbit of information if you didn't know that. Uh, but I, I quite like that. I think that, that's, I think that, that is a, a beautiful statement, and I think that that's something that we can all get behind. We need to be united, and we shouldn't be... It shouldn't be said that we are a people that are constantly divided and that are characteristically divided. Now, that is just the state of Kentucky. When it comes to the church, it should be even more so uh, familiar and it should be even more so pointed, particularly in a local congregation. As you think about this, God says all the way throughout the Bible that we are supposed to have unity. And what happens is when you see division, and we're going to look at a few epistles this morning, but in the New Testament, when Paul talks to the congregations that are struggling with division, that are struggling with issues, with problems that have to be fixed, the language is very pointed. And the language is very, very severe at times. Because it should not be this way when there is division. 
as, 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 as I said a moment ago, the Kentucky State motto is united we stand, divided we fall. We need to be careful that we are not divided because if we are, we will fall. And so just a few thoughts this morning along, along that line. When you think about the local church, first of all, God demands unity and he hates division. Uh, I think about what Jesus says, and he's talking about marriage here, but when he gives this answer, uh, the Pharisees come up and start asking about divorce. He says, what God has joined together, who should tear asunder? Let no man tear asunder. And what I think is implied there is that if God binds people together, what man is going to be bold enough to try and cause division there or try to separate that. Now I know he's talking about marriage, but I think that there is something to be said about that in the church. When God has brought people together, how, how harsh this, the, the, the consequences are going to be on that individual who sows discord and sows strife and contention. And so he hates division. What he wants is unity. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, this is one of a few epistles where Paul has to get very, uh, very direct in his language because there are issues within the church at Corinth. And there are many issues that he deals with. But at the very beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, Obviously, you have that notion of let there be no divisions among you. But who does he exhort them by? In what name? But by Jesus Christ. Now, if, God, if Paul decides to bring Christ into this and say, I exhort you in his name, what does that imply? It implies a great deal of importance, of significance, that don't let there be division. And if there is division, then what it means is that there is a colossal failure whether it comes to certain individuals or all, the entire group, division should not be a part of the church. And whatever reason there may be for division being a part of a congregation, it is failure regardless. There's, there's always room to talk and say, well, maybe somebody is, is contributing to that division more than someone else. But if there is division, guess what? It's failure. And so we have to look at it that way because that's the way God speaks about this. When there is strife, when there is contention, and when there is constant uh, feuding, God sees that as not a success. God sees that as not something that is pleasing to Him, but it's always something that must be fixed. And if it's not fixed, well, then we need to be careful about where we're heading. Jesus' final words, actually, before the cross was for unity. You can think about Ephesians 4, but over in John chapter 17... As Jesus is praying to his father before he is going to be uh, tried and arrested and put on the cross, put to death. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may, be, may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Now, question. What he says at the end of that passage that we just read there, did he say that they may be practiced in unity? No, he says that they be perfected in unity. Now, a lot of times when we bring up that word, we say perfect. Well, no one can be perfect because Jesus is perfect. Yes, that's true. No one is sinless like Jesus is. But, you know, that, I think people tend to forget that passage where Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, 
I understand that we can't be perfect like Jesus, but there's something to be said, and we need to learn what Jesus was trying to say when he says, you be perfect. And what I think ultimately what he's trying to get at is, you be mature in this. Don't be immature. The childish person can't ever have unity because they act like a child. It's, it's my way or the highway. That's how a child acts. That's how an immature person thinks. We need to be made complete. We need to be mature. We need to act our age when it comes to unity. And so we, we, need, to, we need to give this the credit that it's due. He doesn't say well-practiced. He says perfected in unity. And so we need to look at it in the very same way. We need to look at it with the same level of, of urgency as Christ did. Now, how do we attain that unity? Well, if you just look a few verses before this in John chapter 17, in verse 17, it says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. He uses the word truth a lot. But what does it come down to? The word truth. And even in verses 20 through 23, how are we supposed to have unity but that Christ is supposed to be in us? That we are supposed to be one. And, and let me just say, if we truly are one with Christ, there won't be any division. If everyone is truly trying to strive to follow after the footprints of Jesus, there's never going to be any issues that cause great catastrophe within His body. And I would just, I would just say that true unity can only be restored if it has been broken, it can only be maintained through this standard alone. Sometimes churches don't understand why there's problems in the congregation. Sometimes we just kind of, we, you know, bring our hands together and we're just thinking about what went wrong. We're thinking about how could we have gotten to this point. But it's because when it comes down to it, either some or all are not holding to this standard. Whenever there's division, it's failure. And it's because one or more have gotten away from this word, from this truth. And so... We need to be careful that we look at it the very same way. But what are some, identif some of the markers that we can identify division? What are some of the ways that, that people act that may get overlooked from time to time, but what God says is, that's division, that's not unity. And there's just a few things that I'm going to put up on the screen. There are, there are several things that we could talk about, but I think that there are a few very particular things that tend to come up in the church and people say, well, no, we're, we're fine. Everything's going okay. But really what God says is this should not be a part of this church. Complaints for one thing. It, what, is, what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14? But do not grumble. Do not let there be any grumbling or disputes, complaining or arguing. So, so I, you know, sometimes people say, well, there's always going to be some, some level of complaints. There's always going to be some level of, of disputes even. And, and to a degree, I kind of understand that. There is going to be times where we have to argue through something. But when it becomes commonplace in the church, that's a problem. When it becomes commonplace, that's not just a matter of every now and then. That's a matter of there's division. Are there constant complaints? Is there constant disputes? Is there constant arguing? Well, there's division in that church. Or maybe there is uh, a refusal to submit to brethren. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another. It's the very same word that he uses with wives in respect to their husbands. Submit to your husbands. You respect your husband. It's the very same word. And so what is Paul saying? You need to have that level of submissiveness. You need to subject yourself to one another. 
And when people are refusing to subject themselves, when people are refusing to submit themselves to the people in this room, that's divisiveness. And there's no way around that. Now, people, again, would maybe try to go around that and say, you know, well, maybe if it's going to be small matters. Maybe if it's going to be opinions. Of course, there's going to be some level of division. But when it's constant and when we can't get around that, that is a divisive spirit in the church. Someone who won't let those small things go and just wants to make it a, a big issue with everyone. That's divisiveness. And it has no place in the church. When you see cliques within a local congregation, that is divisive. And again, I've said this before, there are going to be people that you're closer with than others. Granted, even, that even happened with Jesus. You have the 12 disciples over all the others that followed him. And even within that core group, you had Peter, James, and John who seemed to spend a little bit more time with him. That's going to happen. But I think sometimes we, we kind of use this as an excuse to say, okay, well, because I get along with one or two brethren here, better than others, that means that I get to spend all my time with them and I don't really have to focus on anybody else. That's what I mean by a click. You could be closer with some than others, but if you're satisfied with not getting any closer with anybody else and only sticking within that group that you're comfortable within, what that shows, especially when it's across the board, that's division. We need to be striving to have unity with everyone. We need to be striving to get closer with everyone, whether they're on that side of the building or this side of the building. <laughs> It doesn't matter where the seats are. We need to be striving to get closer with one another, particularly in Christ. When you have, uh, when, when you have gossip and slanderous speech going on about brethren, brothers or sisters in Christ, that is a sign of division. And so, again, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a few things that can come up that show us whether or not there is division within the local body. Now, I think we need to take it a step further because here's just a few identifiable markers of that. But what happens is I think sometimes there are, there's, there's division that is not as uh, outright. There's division that is very subtle and people think that everything's fine. We need to be careful about this kind of subtle division as well. So I want to talk about this for a few moments. There are moments in, in certain congregations where people think that there is unity, but what their unity is based off of is not Christ. And we need, to, we need to talk about what some of those things can be. And, in, and frankly, this can be in the... A lot of times we focus specifically on denominations, and I think for good reason, but we need to really bring this home. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with Lakeside? That's what we need to come away with this morning. And so can this be said about Lakeside? Is our unity based on Christ, or is it something else? And if it is something else, it's a false unity, and it's feeble. Some, some, uh, some churches don't have unity in Christ, but what they've based their unity on is silence. Now, what do I mean by that? Over in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 11, Paul speaks about being light in a world of darkness. In verse 11, he says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And so I, I think in this context he is talking about being lights in the world of darkness around us. But I definitely think that there's something to be said in bringing that into the context of the church. Of course we can't participate in the unfruitful works of darkness in the world. But what happens when it's brought into the church? 
Are there moments where we are silent about sin in our number? When there is something like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where somebody is sinning and, and, and we see that. And in fact, I would, just, I would uh, commend that article in the bulletin to you by Brother Doyle Moira. I think that this is perfect. A lot of times what happens is churches don't necessarily do the exact same thing as the sinning brother. But what happens is we participate with it. We associate with that sin by not confronting it. And so silence can be a basis of false unity. Are we being silent about sin? Are we being silent about something that should be spoken, that, that, that we should be speaking up on? This may look like unity, but it's division. That's what God says. This may look like there is unity within a congregation, but if people, Christians, lights in the world are being silent about deeds of darkness among them, that's a serious problem. And in fact, I'd go uh, one step further. Not only is silence an issue, but sometimes compromise is that very basis of unity that is very feeble and is going to lead to destruction. Sometimes you hear people say something uh, along the lines of, well, I won't say anything about that if you don't say anything about this. Is that how Christians are supposed to be talking to one another? Hey, I, listen, I, you have some issues yourself, so as long as you stay quiet, I'll stay quiet. What is that? We're compromising on truth. Maybe so that way I won't be embarrassed. Maybe so that some, someone else won't be embarrassed. Have you ever heard someone say, let's just agree to disagree? That is, without a doubt, one of my least favorite, one of the most annoying sayings that people say today. Because, frankly, most of the time I hear that, it's not people from the world. It's people that claim to be religious. Let's just agree to disagree. Everything's going to be fine. We don't have to agree on everything. And... When that comes up, it tends to be on matters of salvation like baptism. When that comes up, it, it, it happens to be on matters not just of salvation, but matters of sin that needs to be dealt with. And if someone is not repentant of that sin, guess what? When they come before God, they're going to receive justice. But, you know, we don't, let's just agree to disagree. We don't, we, we don't need to talk about this. We don't get to disagree about what God has said is sinful in the church. And that's why I have 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sure that the church in Corinth thought to a degree, look at what we're tolerating and look at what we can show the world around us. Look at what we've brought in. But what God says is you are participating in it by tolerating it, by not exposing it and not disciplining the way you should be. And so that's another false basis of unity. Another is I would say personal loyalties. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read this just a moment ago, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, where he says, make sure that there are no divisions among you. Let's read that verse again. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that you, there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, let me just say, when they say at the very end of verse uh, 12 that I am of Christ, I'm not sure that that is in a good sense. Because what Paul is doing is trying to bring to a climax, trying to bring to light what people are doing. They're making divisions within what is Christ's church, no one else's. And so what they've done is put themselves in further factions that God did not put in place. They've put themselves in different factions, different sects within this church that's supposed to be united. 
And so regardless of where they're at, there, there's serious division going on. And I think a lot of that division comes down to, as, as you see on the screen, personal loyalties. And, and what I mean by that is a loyalty that extends past Christ. As soon as we've left that as our main goal, having Christ in us the hope of glory, that's when division begins. That's when division ensues. That's when we're sowing the seeds of discord. And this can look like a lot of different things. This can look like people who just keep causing strife to gain loyalists for themselves, to get popularity with maybe certain individuals, with certain Christians, brothers or sisters in Christ. In fact, when you look at just the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, one of the reasons that they were dividing was because of preacheritis. One of the reasons they were dividing was because of personal loyalties to different evangelists. And Paul, an apostle, says, who, who could definitely, I, I think, say, uh, who's the apostle here? Who's the one that actually saw God, a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus? It's me. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, was I crucified for you? What have you done? You've stopped thinking about Christ solely, and now you're giving your loyalties to men. Men that have not died for you. Men that have not sacrificed for you what Christ has sacrificed for you. Christ is not divided. We aren't divided on this. And I think that's one of the things that he's, he's almost trying to humiliate them to a degree. None of us are saying these things. Apollos, me, Paul, everyone agrees on this. It's you guys that are making issues. None of us has said, you follow me over him. What we've said is, you follow Christ over everyone. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, I preach, I preach Christ and him crucified, and that is it. But they had come in and made, uh, made uh, personal loyalties become a big issue, and they were causing division because of it. Can we be guilty of the same thing? Are we bringing our own loyalties into the church and causing division because of those loyalties? There are several other things that we could say. Politics is something that should never cause division in the church. Something is either sin or it's not. Not only politics, but what about traditions that we have made up? There are traditions that are good, but there are also traditions that are bad. You want to know which ones are bad? The ones that we have elevated to the same level of God's standard, of God's law. When we have made a man-made tradition like that word which God has spoken, that's when we start sowing discord. That's when we start becoming divisive. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 3, Jesus makes this point that they have made the traditions of, uh, the traditions of man like God's commandments. I, 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 I want to be balanced about this because sometimes I think we look at the word tradition and we say, Ugh, I don't like it, forget it. But even Paul says, you need to follow the tradition that we gave you. It's not that tradition is wrong entirely. It's that where have you gotten that from? If it is the tradition that God has taught us, we better keep with it. If it is a tradition that is supposed to expedite the worship or help us in, in, in being Christians, help us in, within the church, within the worship service, then guess what? Those can be helpful, but they can also be very, very divisive. There's one story in particular. There was a congregation that had a veil that they used to put over the, the emblems for communion, for the Lord's Supper. And one Sunday, the veil was gone. And it caused a big, t it, there, was, there was so much uh, arguing going on. Where's the veil? We need to have the veil before we begin. And it just caused so many issues. And finally, by the end of the week, after so much had been said and silly things had been said and arguing had ensued, someone, they finally had a meeting. They were talking through these things. We need to have that veil. Who cares about the veil? One of the older members in the congregation came up and said, you know what, guys? Do you want to know why? I was here when we put the veil on him in the first place. You want to know why we started doing that? All ears. 
He said because the bugs and the flies kept getting into the grape juice and it made it harder to drink. But we got to divide over this. They didn't even know why it started in the first place. And again, it's not to say that it was wrong to put the veil over it. I think that's actually quite nice. I don't want flies in the grape juice. Nobody does. But the problem was they had elevated this to God's standard. And if there's no more need for it, guess what? We, we don't need it anymore. But I am not going to make contention and strife arise in, in God's church, in the body of Christ for something so silly. The only time I'm ever going to make a big to-do about something is when someone has gone against his word. That's when I'm going to make a big issue about it. And so we need to make sure that we're not letting tradition, we're not letting personal loyalties, compromise, silence, politics, none of these carnal things, these earthly-minded things cause issues within the church. I think another thing that can happen is we say that there's unity because people are coming. You can have a big number in the building. Look at the denominational world today. You can have a great number in the building, and yet everyone be lost. Mere presence is not enough. There's much more that God wants us to be active in. The worship, authentic worship, sincere worship. Not only that, but we're not supposed to just be coming to the building and then not acting like Christians the rest of the week. We may think that there's unity, but let me tell you something. It is, we are standing, we have built a house on sinking sand if this is what our unity is based off of. It must be based off of Christ. And so when it's built off of sin, when it's built off of compromise, when it's built off of something that is not Christ, this is division. Now, the question comes, can division be fixed? And I absolutely think that it can be. And you want to know what it comes down to? It comes down to the very thing that we began with, and that is the truth. That is God's word and God's word alone. There is nothing else that we can bring into that equation. It is just the standard that Christ has given us. And so the question comes, when we have received that truth, are we willing to accept it? Are we going to submit to it? And not only that, but are we really going to apply it? And that's where I think a lot of people get snagged up. It's not, of course they accept it. This is the truth. But even the demons believe in shudder. What are you doing with it? Are you willing to submit to it? And are you willing to really apply it and get in and, and make the, the deeper applications in your life and in your interactions with one another? So yes, division can be fixed, but it comes back to being in the truth. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for, for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of those against the other. There's a lot that you could unpack from that. But what is he saying ultimately? Do not exceed what has been written. You have received enough. The gospel is enough. What happens is people become arrogant because they think it's not enough. We've got to figure out another way for everyone to become united. We have got to figure out another way for everyone to actually submit to Christ because Christ is not enough. I know that nobody would say that that's what they truly believe, but that's what we show when we do go beyond what has been written. When we don't just remain as content as Paul was when he says, I preach Christ and him crucified, nothing else. And so are we truly preaching Christ and him crucified? We are supposed to have the same mind towards one another and 
about everything. Now, people would look at that and say, that just seems silly. How could we possibly come to the same mind? Go over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Philippians 2 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent in one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And what does he end with there? As he goes on into verse 5 and onward, he says, you do this by taking the attitude of Christ. You do this by having a renewal of mind and taking his mind. Truly having Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so, all those things that we talked about a moment ago, where there's silence... And we're not speaking up when we should be about sin. And we are just being quiet because we don't want to cause any issues. Can that be fixed? Yes, it can. What do we have to do? We've got to speak up. Ephesians chapter 5, the exact same passage that we looked at. Don't participate in the deeds of darkness. How do we do that? Well, obviously, we separate ourselves from it. But also, we must expose them. And so, can it be fixed? Yes, it can. But we have to be willing to do the work. And that means we're not going to pretend like it's not there. Because when we pretend like it's not there, I think we're acting like Pilate. We look at Pilate sometimes, he says, I've washed my hands of this man's blood. We look at him and think, you're a fool. You still have Christ's blood all over them. There's no amount of washing that you can do. And I think the same thing with a Christian who sees issues in the church and remains silent about it because, you know what, I'm not a part of this. What does James chapter 4 and verse 17 say? To him who knows what the right thing to do is but does not do it, it is sin. So, so really, are, are we going to be able to wash our hands of that? No, God's going to keep us accountable for that. I remember one time there, were, there was a preacher who was talking to another, another preacher, an older to the younger. And there was issues going on in the church. And the younger was just trying to figure out how to navigate things. And he was just becoming despondent. He was becoming depressed. He didn't know what to do. And the older preacher finally said, listen, you know what to do. you got to preach the word and nothing else and that's really all you can do but just remember that God will not bless foolishness God does not bless sin and frankly sometimes we are going to have to remember that and also remember the result what did, church, what did Jesus say in Revelation chapter 2 to one of the seven churches that if they don't repent guess what I'm coming and I will remove the lampstand from you God will not bless foolishness we need to make sure that we are not causing division, keeping, uh, or keeping it going. Where there's compromise, man up. A lot of times we're just timid about things when we just need to speak up, when we just need to get courage, get boldness like Paul, pray to God that we have that boldness, and say like Joshua in Joshua 24 and verse 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need people that are going to be strong in that and resolved in that. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to budge because I'm going to stay firm in God and his word. When there is maybe loyalties that we have that go beyond Christ that are hindering us or maybe hindering others, we are going to note those. We are going to rebuke them and we're going to take proper action. When we see someone that is being divisive in the church, we are not just going to do nothing. Paul says in Romans 16 and verse 17, but that you take note of that person. I think there's something to be said about the, the, the rebuke that is given, uh, maybe more so in context to the elders, but I think it goes broadly across the a board. 
For all Christians, those who have sinned and are unrepentant, what he says, you rebuke in the presence of all so that it will strike fear. And that way people will learn from their mistake, learn from that example, and hopefully they will come back. Are there problems in the church? Of course. There's always going to be problems in the church. The question is, am I perpetuating it because of my sin? Because I'm being timid about sin in the church? Or because I'm just simply not taking Christ over everything else and everyone else? Are we willing to accept his word, submit to it, and apply it? That is how we attain unity. So we need to be careful that we are not going past that standard, not going past that truth, not going past that word because you know what? We need help. This is all the help we need to have unity in the church. If we don't have unity, we can come back here. Maybe there is sin in my life that I need to repent of that has caused discord. We can make that right this morning. You have an advocate in heaven if you are already a Christian. You don't have to leave this building with any doubt in your mind that you, if you die this very moment that you can be in heaven with God. Don't have any doubt. If you're not a Christian, to be united with his body, to be united with the church, you have to first be united with God. And that word comes up in a very particular place in Romans chapter 6, in baptism. Are you willing to let the old man die Put him away. Bury him completely so that Christ can live in you. That you can live a new life. A resurrected life. Now that does not mean that it's going to look like that old life. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to continue in the sins that you used to do. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to have the same mindset as you used to. What it means is you are living a resurrected life. Are you willing to live like Christ? If you're willing to do that, you can be added into that body of the saved. That general assembly of the firstborn. And you can have salvation this very morning. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.